Hi, everybody. This is John Christensen with the Wealth Confidant podcast. I'm super excited to have Kendra Vandermeulen of NCF Northwest join me today on this episode of the podcast. Kendra and I met a number of years ago and have been through a lot. She's helped me a lot in thinking about generosity in my own life. Both of us have been wrestling with the concept of abundance and how to apply money to our lives and use money in a way that brings us closer towards a life of meaning and purpose. I admire her tremendously for her ability to stay in that space and do all the things that are uncomfortable, both in thinking about money, but also wrestling with these complicated areas and emotional areas that all of us face, really. Kendra is a veteran of the wireless telecommunications industry, having served as an executive vice president at Infospace and as the senior vice president and general manager of the wireless data division of AT&T. She's currently an active board member and an advisor to a variety of companies in the wireless internet arena. After she went on an adrenaline-filled three-decade-long career in tech, Kendra took a leap of faith and quit her job. Over the next two years, Kendra did some real soul-searching. She tried to determine what was next. She asked questions like, who am I if I'm not what's listed on my business card? And also, what is the money for? Two questions and concepts that I wrestle with and talk about in my upcoming book. That's when Kendra found NCF, or National Christian Foundation as it's referred to, and accepted a position as their president in the Seattle area. NCF was the place that answered Kendra's questions of what's the money for and allowed an opportunity for her to put her gifts and talents towards helping other people and moving that into action. Since its inception in 1982, NCF has sent $10 billion to 55,000 charities all over the world. In 2017 alone, NCF took in $1.8 billion in gifts and saw $1.4 billion given away in that same year. Talk about a staggering statistic of putting money into motion. NCF is a U.S. nonprofit organization that helps donors give more wisely and tax efficiently to support their favorite charitable causes. NCF's a leader in accepting non-cash assets, for example, real estate and business interests, and is the nation's largest provider of donor-advised funds focused primarily on faith-based givers. You can find out more about Kendra and read about all of the awesome things going on at NCF by visiting their website. You can get there by going to www.ncfgiving.com. During this episode, Kendra and I discuss her advice for wealth creators who are in the throes of their careers and want to begin their own journey of generosity, kind of a how-to. We also talk about what it was like to be a woman in tech in the early days and how she navigated awkward situations and kind of how that applies to what we're experiencing and seeing today. We also touch on her money history and what she's taught her own kids about money as they've grown and matured. And finally, how she redefines success for herself. So 
So Kendra, thank you so much for joining me on the Wealth Confidant podcast. It's great to have you here and you and I kind of go way back. We've got a lot of years of history of knowing (laughs) each other and journeying together in this generosity space as well as just in the money space. So it's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I know a lot of your story, but I thought it would be really fun to just to hear a little bit about how you got to where you are. And I wanted to go way back a little bit and kind of just talk a little bit about how did money evolve in your family as you were growing up? What were the things that money meant in your home and how did that shape you? Yeah, I would say money was a source of fear to some extent and a certain amount of rigidity in our family. So... My first memory of money was getting an allowance. I don't remember if I was like six or seven. And I had this little book of envelopes and every one of them had, you know, something on it that I, and, and an amount. So if I got a dollar sixty, you know, the first 16 cents was for the church and the next 10 cents were for savings or whatever it was. And I got all the way down to the end and of my dollar sixty, I had whatever 10 cents to spend. Mm-hmm. And so that was like, it. That's kind of how you did it. You got your money, you put it in the envelopes and you, and that was it. And so that was kind of a theme that almost excessive and you, if you will, planning, but good discipline, right? Mm-hmm. Good discipline. And then fear because mom and dad, we, we were a solidly middle-class family. Mm-hmm. And as we were getting older, dad's career in the aerospace business got rocky because the aerospace business got rocky. Mm-hmm. And so dad was in and out of situations and looking for work and moving and, and all that. And, and I met my mom, I think, took that pretty, was hard for her. And so that projected to me that I needed to be afraid hmm. about not having enough. So what were the lessons that they either intentionally or, or unintentionally taught you about money that you think you carried into your adult life? Was it the fear then ultimately? I think it was, yeah, security. A security message, which probably is the way I'm worried to begin with, mm-hmm. right? So I, what I took away implicitly from mm-hmm. from the conversation, not necessarily what they sent, was money is a source of security and you need to be really careful about it and make sure that you always, you know, are planning ahead and have enough and and have a good job and, and all that kind of stuff, so... That was kind of the message. And what led you into tech then or into a field that was tech-oriented then? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. When I graduated from high school, I had been really good in math and science, always had been. So I'd been in all the accelerated programs in math and science and all that stuff. And at that point, we were still in a world where for a young woman, your choices were to teach or to be a nurse. And that was it, pretty much. And my guidance counselors kind of made it really clear to me, you should probably, you know, be a math teacher. And that's, you know, that's what you should do. I had no idea of options beyond that, none at all. So I went to college. I was a math major and I was going to get a teaching certificate and all was good. And then my senior year, my dad was out of work. My parents had two in college. And I was looking at my situation going... I could finish this. I had like four hours left to graduate, but I would have to take a full load to get my teaching certificate. I just got it in my head that I should abandon the teaching certificate. I guess I really wasn't that in love with the idea (laughs) to begin with. (laughs) And, And I should just finish my degree. So I did. And so my last term, I was just part-time and did that. So I went to the placement office and I, I looked at every job where they listed math as 
as something they were interested in. And I interviewed for all of them. I had no idea what the vast majority of them were at all. And one of them was selling computers and, you know, different things. Anyway, the best job offer I got was from Bell Laboratories, which at the time was the premier research and development organization in the world. And I had no idea what they did other than they just said, why don't you come work for us? We'll teach you how to write software. I said, okay, sounds good to me. So I went to work for them in New Jersey, spent my first nine months trying, you know, sweating over individualized learning materials, mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to write PL1 and JCL. Those things will mean something to some of your people <laughs> listening to this and some of them won't. Like, what is that? Anyway, so I did that and got as it turns out, really kind of got in on the ground floor of this software revolution mm -hmm. that was not a plan. It was just, it happened that way. And so I, I did that for a while, grew in that, ultimately had an opportunity to go get my master's in computer science, did that, continued to grow in that field, and, and then ultimately started to get promoted and have the chance to run a variety of different organizations inside of Bell Laboratories and later the larger AT&T company. And what were the kind of challenges you faced being a woman in that space at that time? Uh, I guess, what, <laughs> what, what was going on for you? Yeah, there were a lot of really interesting little things that happened as a result of being a woman at that time in that space. An example is at that time at Bell Labs, you know, simple little things like copying machines were segregated between the engineers and the secretarial staff. And I was an engineer. But when I started using an engineer's copying machine, I would not infrequently get challenged as to whether I was supposed to be standing at that copying machine or not. Oh, my. Because I was a woman, and so the assumption was that I was in the wrong spot. Staff. I was in the wrong spot. So stuff like that would happen. How did you handle that? I just looked at people and said, I'm an engineer. Where do you want me to go? <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with that. This is like early 70s, right? So this is a pretty new thing. Another one was offices were two-person offices. And my initial office was with a really wonderful gentleman that I really learned a lot from and enjoyed. And immediately, like six months into that, they moved me to another office with a woman because they had been really, I didn't know this, but they'd been really worried about the male-female context in this mm. office. And mm. It wasn't like there had been any problems, but it was like they didn't, the idea that a man and a woman would be sharing an office in a professional context was uncomfortable, which was interesting. How did it shape who you became? Because I assume there's a bit of tenacity. I've got to kind of work through this and become, you know, the person I've become. But how, what, what did you have to change about yourself or bring more to the surface that caused you to be successful? So tenacity and perseverance have always been just kind of how I'm wired. And so it would be safe to say that I thought, oh, that's a challenge I need to just overcome, right? I mean, that's just what I do. So you overcome. You, you don't let it get you down. And I didn't. That was really simple, really, in many regards. At the same time, it was really the early days of the women's movement. There was a lot of stuff, a lot of talk out there, you know, a lot of news, you know, a lot of pressure. There were groups forming within the laboratories, mm -hmm. other women, you know, really trying to push for women's equality and 
all that stuff. And I never felt super comfortable with that. So I, I got a little involved in it. I, for a while, I felt like, you know, do I have to have this edge to me? But it, it didn't fit me. I never felt that was really who I was. So you, you, it wasn't that you didn't feel that equality was important. Was important. You just said, I don't want to go at it the, that way. That way. Well, right. what way did you go at it then? Just be the best I could always be. That's all. And let that speak for let itself. Let that speak for itself. Interesting. Yeah. What do you think your superpower or gifting is then based on your experience? What, what made you kind of unique at that time or even now? What, what's your superpower? I don't know. That's a good question. I've always been good at listening to other people and synergizing ideas and bringing something out of chaos hmm. a little bit. Interesting. Um, so I don't know. I've never thought about that question before. That's an interesting question. You've mentioned persistence, but there's something that caused you to to be able to thrive in an environment yeah. like that and that continued on in a pretty extensive career in yeah. technology. Yeah. So, I mean, you even elevated, as I, as I understand, in, in technology ranks to executive level oh, roles. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it that caused that to happen? Perseverance, patience, good communication skills, willingness to learn whatever it is I had to learn and constantly push myself to grow, those kinds of things. I never had a career aspiration, honestly. My only aspiration was to be the best I could be, and maybe I could see one job in front of me, but I never thought, oh, someday I'm going to be, you know, XYZ vice president of such and such. I, that was never there for me. It was like, I just wanted to be the best I could be. In this job. In this job right, right now. now. And then when the next opportunity came, you looked at that one. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Versus yeah. today's world where everybody's yeah, kind of got... Yeah, everybody's got this big plan. I'm like, what is that? You know, I don't... I never felt... The good part about that is it drives you, I assume, to, you know, push yourself and grow. And the trouble with that is it sets you up to be, I don't know, competitive mm -hmm. and potentially disappointed mm -hmm. when, in fact, you could just enjoy what you're doing right now and be the best you could be at it and have a lot more fun. So as an executive, you had to be tough. You had to hold your cards, I assume, close to the vest at some level and take on the attributes of being an executive. And I think in a lot of ways, people could be afraid of you at some level and your strength and who you are as a person. How did that sit with you personally? And was that, because I've seen you as a friend evolve a little bit, both I have to be a certain way to be an executive and do what I need to do, but I'm also a softer person than people maybe realize. Yeah. So tell me about those two parts of you. Yeah. So do you know the Enneagram? Are you familiar I am, with the but not, not I super well. Yeah. So I'm an eight. I don't know if that matters to your listeners or not, but that means I'm a challenger. I'm wired to be that kind of strong, mm -hmm. challenging, some would say almost aggressive person. So that part wasn't that hard for me. The thing that I've really worked at is the softer side, the mm -hmm. ability to hear. And I, early on in my management career, you know, I became really interested in the fact that high-performing teams are diverse teams and that we don't really want to have around us people that make us comfortable and people that are like us. We want to have around us people who are the opposite and bring different strengths to the table. And what do I have to become as a leader in order to both attract and develop and knit together high-performing teams mm -hmm. of very diverse 
kinds of people. Right. And so that's something I've paid a lot of attention to and read a lot about and worked at my whole life. That's interesting. So you, you have success, you become a technology executive, you have financial success, and then all of a sudden you decide you're going to do something different. And you get into the philanthropy field with National Christian Foundation and become the president of the local chapter here in Seattle, now the Northwest. Tell us a little bit more about that move from the for-profit world into the not-for-profit world and kind of what led you to make that choice? After 32 years, I knew I was done. I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I just knew I was done. And I, was the done building? I mean, that's a curious yeah, thing. Is yeah. that build over years? Well, yeah. So as you, there was a big turning point for me when I was diagnosed with cancer, 1998. And I went through that treatment process for a year and, you know, obviously lots of follow-on stuff after that for years more. And I think that moment kind of woke me up to a place of saying, is this really how I want to spend the rest of my life, right? And being a high-tech executive is like an adrenaline rush like you've never experienced. And at some point, you have to decide, do I want to live on adrenaline for the rest of my life or do I want something else for myself? And I think that experience started me asking those questions, basically. Mm -hmm. It didn't answer those questions, but it started asking those questions. And, and then things at AT&T Wireless changed in a variety of ways and different you know, opportunities opened and closed. And I kind of knew that I wasn't supposed to be there anymore, but I didn't know where I was supposed to be. So I left and then I waited for a while and I took another job and I you know, did that for a while and it, that didn't feel right either. It really kind of just by trial and error knew I didn't want to do high tech corporate stuff anymore. I loved it. I, I love the experience. I, I am grateful in every way for all the experience that that gave me, but I, I was just done. I did not have whatever it takes to climb the next mountain in that environment. I wanted to do something that felt more meaningful to me. Not easier, mm -hmm. but more meaningful. But I had no idea what that was. Well, so. Why do you think it is that health issues tend to cause people to relook at their life differently? What, why do you think that was for you and it is for other people too? Well, first of all, it brings you face to face with your own mortality, right? And so no longer do you start to, do you think about life just in the now, but you start to think about, you know, this, this isn't going to go on forever. And what do I want it to mean? Mm -hmm. I had young children. My kids were in elementary school when I was diagnosed and I wanted more for them and I mm -hmm. wanted more time with them than I had. So those were things for me because of my faith journey. It was also a place of saying in the grand scheme of eternal things, right? is the next greatest smartphone all there is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, is that what I was made for? And I really felt strongly that that's not what I was made for. So what, what was the new reality of what you were made for? I spent two years asking that question. Really? Two, two years? years? Two years asking that question. And during that two years, there was a lot of prayer, mm -hmm. a lot of study and fellowship with other folks 
of all kinds of walks of life. I was in a group of women that were meeting together at that time, none of whom were executives. You know, there was a teacher and a tennis pro and a counselor and a pastor's wife, and it was a very diverse group. It was a great experience. So there was that, mm -hmm. and then it was just learning to listen, and at the same time, dabbling. So mm -hmm. I served on a couple boards and some advisory boards, and I kind of allowed doors to open and put my toe in, mm -hmm. but I didn't jump in mm -hmm. to anything until I really felt an invitation that was clearly more than just another person wanting me to do something. There were plenty of people wanting me to do something, right? Yes. But, but an invitation that was more a personal invitation from the Lord to enter into something. So you really took the time that a lot of people don't take, right. really. Right. And that's the privilege of wealth, right? The privilege of wealth is... You can do that. It buys time. It buys time. And I think that's really important. I will tell you the first day I sat in my quiet spot and, you know, dealt with the idea that I would, was never going to be senior vice president of some big company again. So, and I was asking questions like, so who am I if I'm mm -hmm. not what my business card said, mm -hmm. right? That was hard. I think it takes six months, my experience, six months to get the adrenaline out of your body to just kind of get all of that spinning to slow down long enough to breathe and feel comfortable with this new normal. At least that was my experience for me, six months. And then be able to really think clearly, it right. sounds like, about what's next for right. me. Right, and openly and not feel pressure. To jump. To jump, right. Tell us a little bit about National Christian Foundation, the Seattle area. What is it about that organization that you think is unique and what kind of creates this new excitement and passion that feels more meaningful to you? So that's a really good question. At that moment, the other thing that I, that I had been working through was this subject of what I would now call the journey of generosity. At the time, I didn't have words for that, mm -hmm. but you know, it was like, okay, I've been entrusted with all this stuff and all this wealth. Why? What am mm -hmm. I supposed to do with that? And so that was also weighing on me. And mm -hmm. so National Christian Foundation kind of brought together this theme of what I would now call biblical generosity. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to live out generosity through this biblical lens with work that is very tangible and really technical in many mm -hmm. regards? And which kind of lights my jets from the technical side, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so, yeah. so it was an opportunity to bring those two parts of me together and then walk with other people and help them ask and answer this question of why have I been entrusted with so much and to what end and what am I to do with that? So for your own life, it sounds like it was both. Why do I have this money? What's it for? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's it for? And National Christian Foundation for you is not only a place to help answer that question, but a place where you could put your gifts and talents towards helping other people? Correct. Okay. And that's so that's what, what you've been saying. doing. That's what I've been doing for the last 11 years. Yeah. And how's it going? What's What's been kind of the highs and lows of that? What, yeah. what have you learned about that? It's been a roller coaster. So starting a Christian foundation in Seattle has challenges, right, in the in the early days. I learned a lot about aspects of philanthropy that I didn't know. I learned a lot about, you know, the field of play. I learned a lot about what it meant to... I, I was never in marketing and sales mm -hmm. ever, right? I had marketing and sales people work for me, but I never was like feet on the street and now I'm out there trying to tell this story and I'm 
you know, basically doing business development. I'm like, I don't know anything about doing this. And so I just had a lot to learn. And so mm -hmm. I, that was really challenging in the early days. And we had to scramble a lot. You know, it has really grown and matured thanks to the support of a lot of people like you. And mostly really thanks to the leading of the Lord that humbled me initially. That was a super important piece of it is mm -hmm. getting out of my own way. Mm -hmm. You know, the first thing I did, of course, when I took this job was to say, okay, where's my five-year plan? I built out all the spreadsheets, you know, what I'm going to have to do, how much money do I have to raise, you know, all mm -hmm. that stuff. And it was just like, forget it. This is just not how this is going to go, right? Mm -hmm. I have to just take this one step at a time, one body at a time, do the best I can with whatever God's put in front of me today. Well, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like, like your career. <laughs> sounds like my career. Like, what, is, what do I get to do today? And let me just be happy with that. And then we'll see what the next day brings, right? So that took me a while to get there. And then, you know, where we are now, 10 years later, we've given away over $150 million and serving hundreds of families across the Northwest region. And it's super exciting to see the outpouring of what what's been happening. That's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So tell everybody a little bit about the organization as a whole. How much mm -hmm. have they given away? And then maybe a little bit also just what makes, I think, this organization unique. Yeah. So people yeah. know how to position these services relative to other sure. generosity sure. services. So National Christian Foundation is a donor-advised fund. And that term means something to some people and not to others. It's a place where you can have a charitable savings account. And you can put stuff in, get a deduction, send stuff out to mm -hmm. charity right? So that is a basic idea. You can get a donor advice fund from a whole bunch of different people, and it's not that complicated. What's unique about National Christian Foundation is several fold. Number one, our middle name. So mm -hmm. we are a Christian organization. We tend to come at philanthropy through the lens of biblical generosity. Mm -hmm. And we teach generosity. So our mission statement is mobilizing resources by inspiring biblical generosity. So mm -hmm. we invest a lot of ourselves in helping people come to understand what it means to truly be open-handed and generous with whatever God has mm -hmm. entrusted to them. That's one difference. The second difference is we're about mobilizing resources. So we're not just about building up assets under management. Mm -hmm. We're about getting them out the door. Mm -hmm. And you can see that reflected in the pace at which money moves through National Christian Foundation. National Christian Foundation is now the eighth largest charity in the country. It is the largest Christian grant maker in the world. It is the most prolific grantor of all donor advised funds by any measure. So far, NCF has granted over $10 billion to 10B. 10B billion. billion since its inception. Last year, nationwide, we took in $1.8 billion and gave away $1.4 billion in the same year. That pace of throughput is really different than other donor advised funds. That's one and, word. And, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and something that we treasure, right? That we, we are very focused on the impact. You know, we don't believe that we have done anything until the dollars get out the door. Mm -hmm. You know, just piling them up doesn't add a lot of value. NCF is now at the rate where we're giving away about a billion dollars every nine months. So it's, it's a big machine and, and it adds a lot of value. The third way it adds value is that we know, we, we believe, our frame of reference is that everything belongs to God, mm -hmm. right? And given that frame of reference, you have to look and ask the question, so how well are we doing 
at managing all of God's stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that 80% of what people give is cash. 90% of what people own is not cash. So what's going on with the other 90%? And the answer, what's going on with the other 90% is most people don't know how to unlock the value of leverage the other 90%. So you're talking houses. We're talking houses, closely held businesses, real estate portfolios, commercial real estate portfolios, intellectual property, kind of just about anything, any appreciated asset that is in your hand often can be a, a leverage point for creating kingdom wealth. Right? So you help people think about not only just their liquid assets and what they might give right. there, but the entirety of their the entirety wealth, of their wealth right? and say, we can help you actually unlock right. generosity in those assets as well. Correct? Correct. How do you help people do that? Especially on the, that illiquid yeah, on that space. Illi yeah. side. It, it really has to do with transition points in people's lives when it's most timely to start to think about these things. So I'm a business owner and I'm transitioning my business to the next generation. I'm getting my business ready to sell to a third party or mm -hmm. anything like that. Or I've been at this commercial real estate game for my entire life and I've built up all these properties. I, you know, I've been doing these things called 1031 exchanges my whole life, et cetera, et cetera. I've got all this stuff and I don't know what to do. It's a big tax burden, right? Those are moments when we can step in and say, okay, well, let's look at ways that you can give part of the business, ways that you can give part of the portfolio, ways that you can plan the evolution of these resources towards whatever your personal goals may be in terms of passing them on mm -hmm. and do that in a, in a way which brings your philanthropic goals to bear and gets you a better tax result and as, as a result more opportunity to do more good work. So there is, uh, it sounds like, and from my experience, it sounds like you guys can both do the donor advised fund, the typical, there's a place we need to put cash or right. securities, but we also have got some expertise to help you unlock right. these other assets. And we've got a sophisticated set of tools and people to help you do that. Exactly. Okay. And, and, you know, most donor advised funds will do a little bit of that, but honestly, it's a, it's a core competency of NCF where we actually bring you know, significant depth of expertise over decades to the table to help a family really sort out what their opportunities are. Because that could be super emotional. It is. Very emotional. challenging. Yep. And that's also a piece of this, I assume. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. Helping totally. people just kind of grapple with yep. this. I mean, and business owners are, one of the hardest things for them is like, you know, what do I do if I'm not doing this anymore? Mm -hmm. Right. I, I can you kind can, of identify can, with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Take six and, months. Yeah. Take six months. <laughs> maybe two years. Months, right? yeah. And believe that there is something beyond this business for you. Right. You have to kind of believe that, mm -hmm. that it's not just, you know, a cliff that you're going to fall off of, but it's a door that's going to open if I'm willing to wait for it. Right. So given that throughput flow of assets, which is phenomenal to think $10 billion have been granted out. A billion four comes, what was the number that came billion in? Billion eight came in, billion four went out. Yeah, so the, just the, the yeah. throughput of, of, of assets is phenomenal towards things that people care about and they can choose those things. So it's, right. they're not limited, they they're can choose right. whatever they want to give to. But given all that, are you surprised with the statistics that still hover around two to 3% of people's income, and that includes the faith-based community, that we're still giving at that level of income. Does that surprise you? Yes, it does surprise me. It actually is, you know, in the faith community, it is a little higher 
than the average, mm -hmm. you know, but it's not enough higher to like go yeah, running. It's decimal points. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not enough to get super excited about. I, I think part of it is a scarcity mentality that people have. And that's one of the things we try to help with in terms of teaching generosity is helping people think more abundantly, understanding that it's not a zero-sum game, right? Nothing in life really is a zero-sum game. You're looking to multiply, mm -hmm. right, the, the capacity. And so you're looking for ways to do that. And there are ways to do that. So part of it is a scarcity mentality. Part of it is, you know, putting your trust too much in, in you know, control of, of assets. But I think part of it is too, where do we decide that this is an income game only? Mm -hmm. why, why is it that, you know, especially for people who've been entrusted with much, we should be measuring our, our anything on it as a percent of income. What about all the other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that, that idea is just not well understood. So it's a definitional problem yeah. Yeah. at some level. At some level. So, you know, yourself, you, you understand the scarcity and the control. You've, you've even do. said that you, you've yeah. grappled with that yourself. Yep. So how did you pry your own fingers off of that? And what, what was it like for you to even do that? And how do you share that with people you're talking to? Well, I try really hard not to, you know, project my own stuff onto other people. Mm -hmm. But I do often have opportunities where I see something in someone where I can ask a question and mm -hmm. say, have you know, have you thought about it from this perspective versus that perspective? And that, that's the best way I can usually be helpful to people is to ask them questions. But in terms of my own thing, I have found that I just have to step out in faith, honestly. I've learned that at least for my life, and I think this is probably true for all of us, is that there is, there's a kind of a progression of coming to understand something and really believe something, but then one has to act on that belief. Mm -hmm. And until you act on that belief, it's, it's not really transformational. You mm -hmm. have to take a step of boldness, of faith, of, of what I would call faith, but you have to step off and actually do something about it. And when you do something about it, then that opens up and you say, oh, that wasn't as hard as I thought, or that wasn't as bad as I thought, or it's not as oh, wow, look at the joy that came out of that instead of the fear, mm -hmm. right? And you Counterintuitive, though. Counterintuitive a, a little bit, that letting go of stuff will actually be freeing. But it is, as a really good author I know named Randy Elkhorn says, stuff has gravity, right? Mm -hmm. And the more stuff you have, the more you have to take care of it, and the mm -hmm. more you have to protect it, and all this other stuff. And and when you start to let it go and you experience the joy of the impact that you can have by letting it go, then the the whole fear cycle starts to break down. Do you still see, though, wealth creators you're talking to that are beginning that journey of generosity, do you see them still getting stuck, even uh, though totally. all that's true? Totally. And why is that and where are they getting stuck? Is it in this control area? It's in control. The, the message of our culture is that our success is measured by what we have mm -hmm. and how much we make. That's a lie. Another lie our culture tells us is that we've gotten all this because we're good and smart and we've worked hard and it's ours, mm -hmm. right? And our job is to protect it. That's not true either. A lot of people are very successful on a whole wide range of spectrum of things, right? It's not all just about hard work, but it is about hard work, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not about ownership. You know, it's not just mine. It's, mm -hmm. it's mine to give mm -hmm. and to deploy, right? So 
to I steward, think, I might to even steward say. Steward is the word yeah. I want to use, but yeah. I was trying not to use. But anyway, it's yeah, I think it's it's that's what it's for. And and so I think that that is not something that people learn. People just learn about how to how to invest, how to protect, how to grow, how to, you know, be worth more, how to, you know, mm-hmm. those those are the things that we put our emphasis on, mm-hmm. right? And honestly, financial advisors don't help that a lot of the time. What do we do as financial advisory community that's that's counterproductive to helping people find more joy? And I would say studies show, it's not even a biblical or a faith-based, yeah. it, studies show that the generosity more you give, generosity joy. creates joy. Right. So, so that's true. That's true. So if that's true, what are we doing as an advisory community that's hurting or is counterproductive to that outcome for our clients? Yeah. So first, I think that many wealth advisors are, are not on their own journey of generosity. And so it's very hard for them to take their clients someplace that they aren't trying to go. And so that's, that's the first thing. So if, if, if as an advisor, I am fearful and I am about, you know, holding on and growing and protecting, that's going to get projected, right? And that's going to connect to my client's already kind of normal fear that they need to be protecting and you know so so that's part of it another part of it is just seeing this kind of whole life you have a great term for living fully living fully yeah this whole full living thing as part of my job as a wealth manager i think that you are i I appreciate that in you Mm -hmm. and you're not alone in that but it's it's kind of an important Mm -hmm. transition for people to make Mm -hmm. away from how do I, you know, just make sure that these people never run out of money to how do I help these people evolve towards living fully, whatever mm-hmm. that may be for mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. right? Another has to do with the economic models, you know, for wealth managers, after all, for most of them, the economic model is built around assets under management. Their business thrives if they grow those assets under management. Their business doesn't necessarily thrive if they help people give it all away. Mm-hmm. So you know, all those things are at play. What role could you play with advisors if they would just relax a little bit? Because I, I, I don't hear you saying we want to hurt you in any way. Yeah. We want to actually bring value to you right. and your clients. But what message would you like financial advisors to hear yeah. in that regard? Yeah. So to the extent that you want to be able to go deeper with folks, and in particular, you're open to having that deeper include this theme mm-hmm. of generosity, we have a bunch of resources we can bring to the table to help people discover what it means to be generous and what this whole journey of generosity looks like. We're happy to make those available and just help you help your clients. The second thing is many wealth managers are focused for obvious reasons on the liquid wealth mm-hmm. and not on the rest of it, right? Mm-hmm. Or the rest of it is something that they deal with. It's a cost to them. It's mm-hmm. not a not a revenue source for the wealth management firm generally. Mm -hmm. And so we can help with that too. So if you are working with people who have a bunch of resources that are illiquid and they're thinking about transition and they're worried about family and they're worried about, you know, how do I, you know, get this to the next generation or how do I do whatever it is they're trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. We have lots of resources we can bring to bear on that too. What tips would you have for wealth creators that are wanting to explore more generosity, explore generosity more fully in their life. So, so I'm sort of new to this. My wealth manager's not talking to me about it, or I'm conflicted because I, you know, that mm-hmm. for all the reasons you said. But what advice would you have? And maybe it'd be somebody who's kind of on that front end of that journey that 
is just at a place where they're seeing financial success like they never have before. And I think this culture and the millennial generation in particular is much more interested in having meaningful life earlier than maybe mm-hmm. I was or mm-hmm. you were in your career. But what advice would you give them based on what you've seen in talking to lots of wealth creators? Yeah. Community. It You know, hang out with the right people. Meaning? Meaning hang out with generous people. So If you want to be generous, hang out. If you want to be generous, you hang out with generous people. Interesting. Seriously. One of the things we've seen happen around National Christian Foundation here in the Northwest in particular is the development of what we call a generous community, which is people, dozens of them, who like actually like to get together and talk to each other about money. Can you believe that? Talk to each other about money. But they don't really talk about like this amount of money and that amount of money. They're talking about, you know, how can I leverage what I have or how do you decide how much is enough for your kids? Or how do you think about choosing a cause that you're going to give to or measuring impact? I mean, these are all really big questions. Mm-hmm. And people are really getting energized by coming together and just mm-hmm. hanging out with each other and talking about these questions. Well, if you start hanging out with people like that, who are all about how am I going to you know, unlock the value of this and give this away and and make a difference in the world with what the resources I've been entrusted to, it's infectious, right? You get into a room with people like that and you see the joy in their lives and you see the energy and the and just the passion that exudes from them. It is such a different experience than hanging out with people that are all about, you know, getting the next hot car, or getting the next, you know, thing, right? It's just a different thing. That's really interesting. You mentioned kids in that. So how, how have you thought about affluence with your own family? I know your kids are grown now, but how did you think about that? And how are you thinking about that now? Is there any advice you'd give from your own experience there? Yeah. So we early on in our kids' lives started exposing them to other things, you know, taking them just on house building trips in Mexico when they were in sixth and seventh grade and on up, right? Mm-hmm. And making sure that they understood that Bellevue wasn't the center of the world. So that's one thing that's helpful. Another thing is we started really teaching our kids how to manage resources relatively early on and gave them more resources to manage than any of their friends ever had. You know, Mm -hmm. we actually said, here, here's your budget and you got to buy your own clothes and you got to buy gifts for the kids. If you want to go to a party, Mm -hmm. don't talk to us, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) manage it, right? Mm -hmm. And so we taught them those skills, and and then we started including them in the philanthropic conversation and asking them around the Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, what are some things that you are passionate about, or this is what we've been giving to, and, mm-hmm. you know, how, how might you want to add to that? I wouldn't say that we've done it perfectly. We have learned a lot, and the hardest part, I think, really is to help your kids, because your kids at least our kids, aren't necessarily passionate about the same things we're passionate about, right? So what you're trying to do is you're trying to instill principles, but not not come across like you're pushing programs. You don't have to love the thing I love, but I want to know what you love. Show me what you love and why do you love it? And how do you how do you think about impact in that area, right? And try to help them begin to ask those kinds of questions. Were you communicating with them about your success specifically financially at any point? And did your kids know that you were successful as a wealth creator? And how did you balance that level of communication with them or not? 
I think it's hard for our kids and the world we live in not to, in some sense, know. Mm -hmm. I mean, they know that they went to a great private school that wasn't that cheap, and they, you know, they know that they lived in a nice place, and they knew that they didn't have as much as a lot of people, or it didn't seem like they had as much as a lot of people, but they had a lot more than a lot of other people. And mm -hmm. so I think they kind of had that sense. And then when they became adults, we started telling them mm -hmm. the reality of things in terms of what kinds of resources we've been entrusted with, what we're trying to do with them, what our thinking about estate planning looks like and why. and Including know, how much they're going to get. Including how much they're going to get or not going to get, right? And the fact that it's not, you know, that if we live long enough, they may not get anything, right? But because we plan to give a lot of it away before we die, right? What, what's been their reaction to being that vulnerable and open with them? Because that, that could be a, another unique thing for people to share, you know, fairly openly with their kids because there could be a fear they're going to think, they're getting a bunch of money that might impact their desire to be productive themselves, or people have that fear. People have that fear, and I think it's a valid fear if your intention is to is to give. What what did Warren Buffett say? It's, it's something like if you you know I want to give my kids enough that they can do anything, but not enough that they can do nothing. Correct. Right. Yeah. Great and quote. Yeah, yeah. So I I ascribe to that, right? And our kids know that that first of all, we don't have enough resources to deploy to them that they would have they would have the ability to do nothing anyway but we certainly could move in that direction if we mm -hmm. if we decided to and we've chosen not to do that and and they understand why what has been their reaction i think they're puzzling i mean i think at first they were like i'm not sure what to do with this and mom and dad this isn't really our stuff and so why are you telling us this mm -hmm. and all that but a lot of it is like trying to help them understand that we want to invite them into a conversation about responsibilities they may end up with depending mm -hmm. on how long we live and how much we're able to do while we're still on this earth and because you got to yeah. tell them sooner I mean they're going to find out one or way right. or another and right? I don't want them to find out like on the other end of the reading of the will right? right yeah so we've been open about that and I think they're still you know they're in their early 30s and they're still puzzling with that a little bit in terms of they're not quite sure how to respond other than I think they do appreciate yeah, honesty. I'm not sure that they've yet kind of grown into having a clear idea of, of what that means to them. As it relates to living fully, which is something that I talk a lot about and that you're comfortable sharing a little bit so far today about your own life, but how would you define that for yourself at this stage of your life? And you've been through a lot of different spaces where success was maybe a little different and living fully might have been different at the time you were a tech exec. And now you've been in the generosity community and world for quite a while. But how, how at this stage of your life would you define living fully for yourself? So part of it is balance and finding enough space to live fully into being a grandmother and live fully into being a mom of adult children, as well as being an executive in this foundation world sorting out how to balance all of that out in a way that's comfortable. Um, I feel like in my work itself, I think the thing that makes me feel the most full is when I get to see a family take a step forward, mm. just a step forward. It doesn't have to be you know earth shattering, but to have the opportunity to spend some time with the family and um, encourage them, teach them, Help them understand some things they may not be may not understand either from a generosity perspective or from a technical perspective about assets and how they can be used and stuff. But to teach them and to see their eyes opened and then have them say, "Oh, you know, we could take a step that we didn't know that we could take or that we hadn't thought we could take or whatever." It's just 
really, really cool when you see people do that. And that fills me up. That's wonderful. So if people want to find out more about the Northwest region of uh, National Christian Foundation or just the organization as a whole, Mm -hmm. or they want to communicate with you directly about your experience and your wealth of experience and, and capabilities that you can bring to bear for somebody, how should they connect with you? So our website is northwest.ncfgiving.com. You can go there and find all of our contact information, meet the whole team here in the Northwest. You can also, from there, link into the national site at ncfgiving.com and learn more about NCF. Just reach out to us at northwest at ncfgiving.com is our general email address as well. You can reach out to us there, and we'd be very happy to get back to people and answer their questions and dream with them and walk alongside them. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you in here and just kind of getting reconnected on some of this generosity stuff. So thanks so much for being uh, my guest on the show. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Kendra. I hope her story inspires you on your own journey of generosity. Remember, anything is possible. Now go live fully. Wealth Confidant is produced by Anna Olivia McLean. Music is by Royal Deluxe.